0: geospatial technology impacts every person who uses a smartphone, drives a car, or flies in an airplane. It refers to all the technology used to acquire and interpret geographic information. In more advanced settings, geospatial technology is used for constructing dynamic maps, 3D visualizations, and scientific and governmental simulations. The company MakePath specializes in geospatial technology and full-stack application development. MakePath helps companies to create beautiful and simple visualizations from mountains of complex data. Using open-source Python libraries and real-world validation, they create analytics, web applications, and other automation processes. They're passionate about the open-source ecosystem and contribute to many ongoing projects. In this episode, we talk with Brendan Collins from MakePath. He's a founder and principal of MakePath, and he previously worked as a principal of Parietal and was a software developer at Anaconda. We talk about geospatial data science and MakePath. Brendan, welcome to the show. Hey, Jeffrey, thank you. There is a growing ecosystem of tools around data visualization of geospatial data and processing of geospatial data. Give me the state of the art of geospatial analytics and geospatial data platforms. Why is this important today and why is it growing in importance?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think just to start decomposing what is geospatial data and geospatial technology into some of its component parts can be helpful. So on the, the spatial data science front and geospatial in general, we think a lot about the, the capture of data and the storage of that data, but then also the analysis and visualization of the data. And each one of these component parts advances at a different rate. We get new sensors that come online that get attached to, you know, different remote sensing vehicles that might be a plane or a satellite. And we go through processes of understanding how to best store that data and get that to the people that can analyze it and derive information and insight from it. So as we move, say, from a satellite to a blob store somewhere on the cloud, pre-processing satellite images extracting relevant information and trying to figure out the best action based on that information. That entire tool chain has been evolving over the past really since the late 60s with people like Roger Tomlinson defining what geographic information systems were and defining the the fundamental data structures for storing things like arcs and vectors and rasters. So the last 50 years we've had you know an evolution of that technology And the area that I'm most interested in is on the open source side. So as we look at taking uh, geospatial technology and allowing more people to access it more easily and being able to have uh, transparent tools that we can collaborate on, that building communities around open tools is one area where I see this technology really taking off right now with libraries like GeoPandas on the Python side, um, GDAL as one of the fundamental geospatial dependencies from um, that's all open source. So I see in breaking down geospatial into its different components, the area that I know most about is on the analysis side. So I look at what are the tools out there to analyze increasingly large data sets or increasingly growing data sets. So those technologies are not specific to geospatial in in many instances. Those involve, what are our tools for scaling and analysis um, horizontally across many machines and clusters of machines so we can handle planetary size questions? And then also, how do we make our algorithms faster and more accessible and more extendable? I would call that kind of more on the vertical scaling side. So just a, just to a start the conversation there, certainly a, a large question, but I think on the, on the analytics, it's about making the tools easier to access and being able to scale the tools to larger problems.
0: And when I think about the applications of geospatial analytics, I'm mostly thinking about to, like problems where there is a human in the loop, like where you have a human analyst looking at a visualization of geospatial data for example, to decide where to open a new restaurant, for example, looking at foot traffic to, to decide where to open a new restaurant. Is that where most of the problem domain is, or is there also a problem domain around just doing calculations and, and kind of doing like machine learning around just calculating problem sets where you have, you know, something like a, like a, essentially like a location graph.
1: So site selection for new locations, you know, for a restaurant or a chain of businesses is certainly a geospatial problem because it involves the question of where, so anytime we're asking the question where, there's a good chance that geospatial may come in there. On that question involves is so fundamental that we have to figure out different ways to represent those the fundamental phenomena of the world. And that's where we, you know, go in deeper into the geospatial world, is about how we represent the phenomena of the world in a computer. But on the specifically on machine learning, the question of where is often a decent place to start to find new features to build models on. So, say you're you're trying you're looking at at a topic and you want to to do feature engineering and add additional dimensions, say, to your data frame before you start uh, training. Then, uh, looking at geospatial technology to understand, say, the closest police station to the location, that would be a, a question you could answer using GeoPandas or using X-Array Spatial, one of the open-source libraries that we work on at MakePath, and then add that as a new dimension to your model for learning. So there certainly is the just the where question. So anytime that we have where, we, we potentially have a geospatial problem to, to solve, and we see that reflected in many of the technologies out there. So if you look at a database like PostGIS, which is a spatial extension for Postgres, That will allow you to ask the question, is this row in the database within 10 miles of this other row? That's an aware question that we can apply to, you know, relational databases um, using geospatial extensions like PostGIS.
0: Tell me more about the application domains. Let's talk a little bit more about the high-level application domains that are in need of better geospatial tooling right now? And then maybe we can dive a little bit deeper into the engineering.
1: Yeah, so one of the original kind of geospatial analyses that people point to is the, the John Snow cholera outbreak map in, in London in the mid 19th century, looking at the relationship between wells and drinking water and cholera outbreaks. So this is in, the, in epidemiology. We just went obviously through and are currently in a, a, the COVID pandemic, and the, the question of where in the COVID pandemic is really important, including things like contact, contact tracing, looking at the locations that someone went as they traveled potentially with a, a COVID diagnosis. So the high-level applications apply to many different domains. So if we think of data science in general as being mathematics plus computer science plus a domain, then geospatial falls into that Math and computer science area, and then is applied to a domain. So, as at MakePath, we're you know a spatial data science firm in Austin, Texas, and we find ourselves working in finance, in oil and gas, in natural resource management, environmental conservation, retail, because all of these domains need have questions that involve where. And so, the at the high level application, it can be things like. Quantifying the amount of carbon in a stand of forest so that we can try to attribute a dollar value to, to wood that's existing and capture an externality that is the storage of carbon. That's an application in the the natural resource management area that we work with groups to try to quantify carbon and look at um, hitting climate change goals for companies. Then on the finance side, There's many times geographic questions that can affect a certain sector where financial groups are looking at what's the effect exactly of a vessel getting stuck in the Suez Canal, for instance, and what are some of the downstreams effect geographically and how do you quantify that? A lot of that may be quantified off of things like ship trajectories, where we try to understand what exact, like how far were were these ships going and what's the implied cost to having them be delayed. So the question of where comes in almost across all domains because where is the context in which we're doing things, right? So if we're we're trying to understand the world better so that we can make better decisions, and that's where you know the, at a high level where the geospatial technologies come in.
0: What is the stack of technologies that you need to build geospatial analytics? So, like I, for example, I'm just just taking a guess, but At the visualization layer, you know, you've got a stack of technologies that maybe render in a browser or render in, or like you use, you know, you're using Python-based tools to to just render on your machine. But there is some data pipeline that leads to an output that gets consumed by this, this rendering system. So I I'd like to sort of get the architecture for the data munging and data production side of things versus the data representation side of things? Like, do I need to use like Spark or Presto and then like get an output that's like a CSV file? Or is it like a, uh, like a streaming data system? Or is there some geospatial representation? And then, you know, what's the, what's the pipeline to to convert that into a visualization?
1: Yeah, great, great question. So I think it's important to start with how at a fundamental level how we represent geographic phenomena in a computer so there's two predominant ways that we do that um, that map to the types of phenomena that we see so first is the vector data format and while there's collision collisions in terms between disciplines vector is certainly one of them you go between disciplines and the word vector means something different or slightly different in the geospatial world when we say vector data, we're referring to points, lines, and polygons, or discrete phenomena that we can represent as sequences of coordinates. Those are things like a uh, highway would be a, a line feature, while a, maybe a, a gas station is a point feature. So the, we represent that. That's the one, first type. The second type would be how do we represent continuous phenomena? So there's things like rainfall and elevation, distance, and even soil types that can be better represented as a regular grid than a sequence of coordinates. And this is the, f- this is the fundamental nature of, of things outside of geospatial, right? We think of Adobe Illustrator as our vector editor. We think of Adobe Photoshop as our raster editor. And that, that those same two types of data make it into the geospatial world, and there's different formats to to hold each of them. When scaling, people are generally more comfortable in the geospatial world with vector data, with these discrete features that you can have mapped attributes, and then you can do things like easily partition a file of points across a Spark cluster, right, and do an analysis, a a point analysis. The raster side is more the domain of image processing. So we think about, about our image formats the classic ones, we're talking TIFFs, JPEGs, PNGs. In the in the, the sequence of getting, say, a visualization to the browser, at some point we're going to want to be in a browser-native raster format. And we, we know the PNG and the JPEG as raster formats that the browser understands. Now, how we go and, and move from, say, a planetary-size petabyte partitioned set of TIFFs in a blob store to a PNG that is nicely color mapped for a user to see, to gain some insight from, from the data. That is a lot of what we do in on the open source side in a project called Data Shader. So Data Shader generated um, some maps for anyone that I'm not sure if they can see behind me to allow us to take large data sets and find structure in those data sets without using brittle heuristics, like subsampling or transparency and having an intelligent way to go from vectors, discrete sequences of coordinates to rasters, which are regularly gridded quote unquote images. So the transfer one of the, one of the areas when we're doing munging and processing is understanding is this phenomena better represented as a vector or is it better represented as a raster? It's a fundamental question. And the, the um, playing between the two is where you can do some interesting analysis, as we may imagine doing a, um, something like a suitability analysis, if we're looking to decide on a new location for a farm, for instance. There's going to be many different factors that come into that, including discrete data, like distance to a river or distance to a, um, a highway. We're going to have to deal with those river and highway features. And then also continuous data like elevation and rainfall that can help us build a model to site select our new farm. And a common way to do that is to rasterize everything into a common resolution and then do a thresholding to see if you're within the thresholds of, of each one of those dimensions for finding your new farm and um, being able to generate a single image that shows the uh, suitability of a, of a given pixel in the image at a given resolution for farming. So the the conversion between vector and raster is important. The data formats on how you store data are important. In general, right, when we're thinking about how we store data, I think about a couple of things in terms of data formats, and these are not specific to geospatial. This is just data science in general, right? So I'm looking for binary formats that I can partition into chunks, that I can add compression to, and that in the case of a, of a vector set, I'm looking to store by column. So if it's a columnar store that um, includes uh, good compression support that I can partition so that I can run a, a cluster against it, and it's binary, I'm pretty happy. Now, there's other formats that that I tend to, to also use, things like GeoJSON, which is a, a very helpful format, text-based JSON to represent vector data or sequences of coordinates, right? And... That's really nice because it's human readable. So as I'm developing an application or a dashboard, I can include a snippet of GeoJSON that represents a discrete area. And that's easy to update and it's easy for folks to look at. And if it's small, then having it be binary on disk isn't, isn't that big of a worry to me. So it's um, a lot of the interplay in building the applications has to do with making sure that we get the geospatial data into a format native to the browser, if, if that's what we're targeting, is like a browser visualization. We have to think a little bit about where in the browser we're rendering it. Are we rendering it on as SVGs? Are we rendering it on a canvas or within WebGL? Those are all questions that we would want to have the data uh, transformed into the appropriate format for targeting that area of the browser. So not just... The browser but what in the browser are you doing
0: okay you've given a decent um, overview of the modern state of data visualization and data visualization application architecture and i'd like to ease into a discussion of what you are working on so I guess let's go by way of example. So to understand what MakePath is, could you give a few examples of how customers use your software?
1: Yeah, so MakePath is a services firm. We have a, a heavy focus on spatial data science and open source. And we take open source projects that we create and also are created by others and leverage them to, to solve our clients' spatial data problems. That's fundamentally what we do. We don't sell a software product, but we do create um, software communities. Right now, Xarray Spatial, which is a spatial extension for the Xarray library, is our main focus. And our focus there is to make the tool accessible to geospatial analysts. So what what, what we're fundamentally doing there is taking tools from general data science, so things like that we know and love in the Python community like NumPy. And pandas and dask and Numba, we're taking these libraries and implementing the core spatial algorithms that we need for analysis using language that geospatial analysts understand so there's a cross-domain area here where for instance within numpy we would call a uh, slope or the you know the change in elevation we would call that you know, we'd name it something like gradient or np.gradient. Or in geospatial land, we call c- curvature, which is the second derivative of, of elevation. We, we on the other side of the, of the way we, you know, may call that acceleration in, within physics. So there's a lot of tools that already exist that can be leveraged for geospatial, but they're not named in ways that geospatial analysts understand necessarily. So we're going and implementing geospatial algorithms for raster data, specifically within X-Ray Spatial, and then uh, spelling, quote-unquote, the functions in ways that geospatial analysts will already understand and be familiar with.
0: Is there a relationship between what customers come to you looking for help to build and the open-source projects that you build? Like, is there a flywheel where... They come to you with problems, and you're like, "Oh, this is actually a gap in the tooling ecosystem. We can build an open source project to alleviate this."
1: Yes, definitely. So there's um, two specific cases right now where we're working with companies to try to fill gaps in the eco in the open source ecosystem. The first with X-ray Spatial is Microsoft's planetary computer. So Microsoft is launching that, and there's there's kind of announcements of that. That's th- yesterday so for some soft launches. But we're um, working alongside Microsoft to fill in a gap in raster processing. So right now, if we look at providing huge data sets to Microsoft users in a hosted environment with open source tools to do analysis, uh, then there's a powerful combination there. And in looking at distributing that analysis across a cluster of machines, x Spatial is one of the libraries that's actually trying to address that. So we look at our algorithms and we consider them all for distributed and GPU uh, situations where we want to leverage task schedulers and leverage um, CUDA to do better analysis at at larger scale. So Microsoft right now is is the main sponsor for X-Ray Spatial and we continue to work with them to fill in tool gaps, whether that be focal tools in passing, you know, uh, kernels across raster data, zonal tools, Things like proximity, distributed proximity tools and pathfinding, um, view shed, which is you know, like one-step ray tracing, just like line of sight across a terrain. So those are some of the use cases that were gaps within distributed computing that we were interested in for the planetary computer, which is part of AI for Earth. On another front, there's disciplines where there's existing tools and they work well, but they just need to be a little pushed forward. So 2021 is is the year of Bokeh for Makepath. Bokeh is a visualization library written in Python that is based on the Grammar of Graphics book, uh, understanding how to compose um, beautiful graphics. There are many geospatial features within Bokeh, but this year we're really focused on publication quality outputs. So do these tools give you something that you can submit to a journal and feel confident about. And that's what we really want to focus on on this year on Bokeh is allowing for people to add LaTeX to their Bokeh plots and also export SVG and be able to support those specifically bioscience use cases. And that's through a sponsorship from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative in um, pushing forward bioscience with open
0: source. Can you give me a little bit more on the background of Bokeh? I, I know this project has been around for a while. What's been the evolution?
1: Yeah, that's that's great. And so going way back, so Peter Wang, uh, who's the CEO at Anaconda, he created a library that's called Chaco, which was a visualization library that later became Bokeh, not in a direct line, but certainly through uh, Spirit. And Bokeh has been, well, you know, started up by, by Peter Wang has really been built out with um, Brian Vandevin. So Brian has been leading that project at least uh, probably since 2014 is my guess, but I might be wrong on that. And he is is the main force in organizing that and, and pushing it forward. So Bokeh, is uh, as it has evolved, has gained new components, including Bokeh Server, which is a WebSocket-based server so that you can write things like interactive callbacks within Python and have them execute from JavaScript, and also adding in uh, support for different visualization types and plot types and higher-level plotting abstractions to allow people to express commonly made plots easily. So Bokeh provides a lot of the, the fundamental structures to create plots, but for a little bit was a little hard to use. So there's a, you know, some higher level abstractions on top of Bokeh, things like hollow views and panel are two libraries that heavily use Bokeh and provide, you know, higher level abstractions for layout and for plot types. But Bokeh is, um, uh, has an amazing community of, of contributors and also does a lot of evangelism, um, sponsoring different groups like, um, PyLadies and SciPy and holds sprints in, in, in places we have a weekly Bokeh uh, dev meeting, which anyone can join, and uh, that that helps push it forward. But yeah, so there's a that's a kind of a, a high level description of Bokeh.
0: We've done a few shows on on some of the modern Python tooling, like Dask, and I guess there's also. Um uh ray which it's, uh, it's is maybe not as closely related it, it's, it's sl- you know it's different than dask I, it's been a while since i did those shows so i don't remember the, the the comparison exactly but can you give me some detail on the modern state of python parallelism and uh, how that relates to geospatial
1: yeah so one thing just to start as a public service announcement, if you find yourself in Python importing multiprocessing and writing your own multiprocessing pool, um, you should definitely be looking at Dask and Dask Bag because it's the simplest way that I've seen to do multiprocessing in, in terms of multi-core within Python. One of the great things about Dask is that it wasn't specifically developed for clusters. While there is a distributed, which is a distributed task scheduler that's packaged up with Dask, Dask works just fine on a single machine. So there are still issues, right, where we think about parallelism and multi-threading versus multi-processing within Python and the global interpreter lock and different issues that come across when using threads and uh, having problems with compute-bound operations using threads in, in Python. That remains. There's certainly interesting ways to get around that in releasing the guild using projects like Numba. So we use Numba to be able to write Python code, uh, really a subset of Python, to get around the global interpreter lock and be able to do real multi-threading in LLVM code, then that's the magic that Numba uh, does for us. So when we think about parallelism and scaling, there's one thing which is just making your tight loops fast when you're trying to get through tons of pixels, and then there's also being able to do that in a multi-threaded environment or in like a CUDA, a CUDA environment. And those are things that we're, we're addressing in, in X-ray spatial, specifically for geospatial. Now, Dask, Dask really helps us because Dask provides the Dask array, which is a distributed ND array. And we need that for our raster processing, specifically to do things in a distributed context, like um, dealing with edge effects. So as we're um, say applying a, a, a focal kernel across a distributed image, we need to be able to handle those edge effects in a graceful way that's easy easy to express to the user. So doing things like um, having overlapping partitions and figuring out which partitions we need to load in to do an analysis in 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 blocks in chunks is one of the items that we're able to express through Dask. So when I'm thinking in, in concurrency and parallelism, there's a, that obviously applies to one machine, but then also the cluster situation. And also, obviously, compression is a, is a big component there, where there's some, there's some large, you know, big data problems that seem like you may need DAS, a DAS cluster to solve, when really you just need better compression. And so we look at projects like Blosk from FranSec Alted, who's based in Spain, That is one of the compression libraries that we look at and, you know, using data formats that help us uh, to reduce the size of problems to not need to involve the extra complexity of a DAS cluster, even though that's becoming easier and easier all the time with the hosted DAS clusters from coiled computing. If you're if you're familiar with coiled computing, they're a great, great way to hook up your cloud provider, whether it be like AWS or Azure to a DAS cluster without having to uh, go into all the workers and install your dependencies and administer the, the DAS cluster. So just to start, the fact that DAS clusters are easier to get going now with Coiled, plus libraries, uh, domain-specific libraries that use the DAS data structures, things like the DAS data frame, the Dask array, and the DAS bag, those are the path forward, at least, for Geospatial that we're focused on is, is how to bring uh, these tools that are perfectly, that, that work really, really well, but weren't designed for a geospatial context and wrap them with algorithms and names that the geospatial folks know. But it continues. I mean, the, the, the issues that come up in distributed computing are certainly a level more complex than on a local machine. So we always do our analyses first on a subset of data on a local machine. And then we see, then we ask the question, if I rent a huge cloud server, can I just run this there and would, would that be enough? And if I can't rent a, a machine with 128 cores to solve my problem, then I will um, then start thinking about uh, HBC and clusters and uh, and that's where I definitely go to Coil to set that up because I rather I'm going to be running on a cloud somewhere and I, I just want I don't want to do the, the administration part of setting up a cluster.
0: And can you explain, like, if I am trying to run some kind of data visualization algorithm, like a clustering kind of uh, a clustering kind of algorithm, like I want, uh, like, let's say I, I am trying to find some sort of uh, measure. Let's say I want a visualization that is a measurement of the you know the most likely places to have a very good uh new starbucks like if i'm starbucks i've got a ton of starbucks already um, i know a lot about the united states i know where coffee shops are this is like a np complete problem it's like super hard to to solve but i want a visualization that gives them near near good representation of what might be a good visualization of of where i should place my new newest starbucks I want to parallelize that. I want to rent a bunch of servers in the cloud. How are those servers collaborating on creating that data visualization? Is it just like, can you just sort of delegate all of this to Dask and have Dask like figure out how to parallelize this thing? Or do you have to do some hard programming work?
1: you shouldn't have to do too much hard programming work all the all the tools that you'd need to do do that sort of analysis are available within the pi data ecosystem so in in thinking about that site selection for a for a McDonald's or star, excuse me a Starbucks we would make sure that we had all all the spatial data for the components that we were interested in we'd make sure that we have all the the highways and roads demographic information based on census information about you know past past sales and any other dimensions that we know from existing Starbucks locations and be able to do that cluster analysis and, and, and rate, maybe we rank the clusters by uh, not so good to, to outstanding location in, in some, some um, maybe pay means or something like that to, to find those bins. Then um, we have a little bit of a question of in presentation to the user and at what scale. So when we look at that at the global scale, we want to be able to intelligently resample whatever we're doing so that the users can can make out structure at a global scale and be able to zoom into an area and then see local scale structure. And that might mean that we're rerunning a suitability analysis using a different study area dynamically as we're as we're going. So being able to have a cluster. Maybe I should just back up here and say fundamentally what Dask does. So Dask executes task graphs, and there's different data structures to help you form those graphs, but at just a fundamental level, that's all that Dask is doing, is it's coordinating work between workers and a task scheduler to execute a graph and retrieve outputs from that graph. So Dask provides that piece of infrastructure. Now, DataShader is a library that would allow you to actually build that visualization and do things like resampling and color mapping in a distributed context because DataShader takes the Dask data frame as an input to its operations for its graphics pipeline. So we look at these other libraries that build on top of Dask for domain-specific problems. So if it's um, converting all of your points into an image... And, and you have a trillion points that are divided up into maybe one billion chunk partitions, then that's you'd be able to spell that or write that out in Python in a sequential way without doing things like addressing individual partitions or addressing individual workers. That is the job of what Dask does. The logic on what to do on that data may fall on the Dask side if it's if it's a kind of data frame type problem or like a NumPy universal function type um, operation, like doing a standard deviation or doing a um, a rolling window, those are the sorts of operations that you can do using um, the Dask data frame and the, the uh, NumPy universal functions. But then for other things like, hey, I want to color map Using the mins and maxes across all partitions, so I can stretch my, say my, um, purple value to green value. I want that um, stretched using the min and global min max of my dataset, but I don't want to address individual chunks and have to, and basically write that blocked algorithm myself. That's what Dask you know can do for you with Data Shader and other domain specific libraries on top of it that integrate with Dask. So x array spatial that we're doing integrates with Dask for doing classic 1D classification algorithms that geospatial folks know. These are things on the geospatial side, like calculating binned quantiles and equal interval and uh, natural breaks, which is like 1DK means. Those are some of the classification algorithms that we do, but we also do zonal algorithms where we're trying to do summary stats for specific zones within an image. And those are um, also things that geospatial folks want to be able to do, and they want to be able to do at scale, and they're not going to, to necessarily come in with the, the distributed computing and HBC background to understand how to use MPI or those, the, the other you know, distributed tools that uh, computer scientists are really great at. But geographers need a little, little help in expressing uh, that sort of analysis.
0: Okay, very interesting. Are there some specific bottlenecks in application development given the current set of tools? Like, is there a need for for better tools? Is there some specific improvement or set of improvements that needs to be made?
1: Packaging is always a battle. It's not particularly... Pupil dilating stuff to build better package managers and be able to install and manage dependencies. It is super important. Conda is a is is a uh, package manager that continues to try to solve that problem. But so I would say packaging and removing what I call like creativity killing problems. So I have a I have an idea I have a great idea for a new analysis that's going to you know knock someone's socks off. But then in the process of going through it. I have a problem with a dependency or some other dependency, and then I'm I'm troubleshooting an environment problem, and I'm not focusing on my core question or the core work that I want to do. So, moving, you know, in marketing, in marketing speak, you know, time to value for analysts is is super important, and packaging is one of those those areas that you know continues to be a, a pain. Sometimes it's gotten better, but that's one area where we're focused on X-ray spatial is not having C extensions. So we need the speed of C as we're implementing, say, like an image processing algorithm. But when we include C extensions, we need, to do, we need to do builds for different platforms. We need to make sure that people have certain build dependencies uh, installed locally. And we get around that by using a just-in-time compiler called Numba. And so If there's one library that goes with Dask, in my mind, it would be Numba because Dask covers our um, horizontal scaling and Numba covers our vertical scaling of making our algorithms faster. So what we're able to do is stay in one language, avoid the the C extensions, which makes packaging easier, and then uh, still gain the speed that we want and allow people to extend the library in, in Python without having to contact switch to another language, which... I guess maybe a a second area is just extensibility, allowing people and transparency. So allowing the folks that are using the tools to see the code and extend the code for their own use cases in an easy way. Like I use GDAL, but I don't regularly extend GDAL. And the process of extending GDAL is intimidating to me. And that I don't have a huge C++ background, uh, but it still is an intimidating thing for me to go in and think about um, extending GDAL extending something like X Ray Spatial, which has a much limited much more limited breadth than GDAL. I mean GDAL is is the, the the kind of the ultimate raster library that we have in the open source and we're basing a lot of what we do on them and if it wasn't for them we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing. But we, we do it is much easier to extend X ray spatial and to um, read the code and understand the code than in the GDAL case of of. Really using Gdal as a dependency that's wrapped up in uh, with Python bindings. So I guess it, just, just to summarize, it's packaging, extensibility, and transparency into code, uh, which you know obviously ties into extensibility. But those are those are the major things I see.
0: As we begin to wind down, I'd love to get your perspective on the industry and how data visualization fits into the modern software industry geo, geospatial data vision, data visualization specifically fits into the modern industry and how you expect it to change in the next 5 to 10 years are there certain extreme changes coming coming soon that you see like for example uh, one of the companies I've, i see you've partnered with is safe graph and we've done a bunch of shows with safe graph I, I really think it's an interesting company because they're basically a date like a, a Self serve data platform, and I think democratization of data is a is a big deal if you have democratization of data, you have all kinds of new applications that can be built so maybe that's that's one trend you could you could uh, you could explore but you know I'm, I'm just curious to get your get your thoughts on where things are going
1: If I can drop just a terrible platitude, I would say that you know a picture is worth a thousand words to some some degree. With all the data that's coming out and companies like SafeGraph that are doing amazing work on the data side, it can be really difficult to tell your story as just a pure data company. And that's a lot of the work that we were doing with SafeGraph is being able to show examples of how to use data to, to move from you know information into insight. So what are we going to do with this data? How do we communicate it so that those insights pop? And those might not come from the analyst exactly. Those might come from someone else in the organization or someone outside the organization that looks at a picture and can see, hey, there's something there's something weird here. So the ability to tell the story is fundamental and visualization really speaks to that and speaks to, you know, one of our senses, which is our our ability, you know, our sight and our ability to interpret different degrees of color to some degree. So so being able to tell your story and being able to make that story very simple for folks is great within the area of exploratory data analysis being able to see the relationships between the dimensions in your data is extremely helpful to find outliers and to understand the relationships between variables Um, data visualization and scatter plots and uh, has been used obviously for a really long time but how do you scale that to larger data problems if you have a trillion points and you want to create a scatter plot to understand the relationship between variables or multiple distributions? How do we do that in a way that doesn't use brittle heuristics? And that's a focus of data shader, and I you know see that growing and continuing to be used as a way to intelligently aggregate your data to the pixels on your screen, so that you can not use things like subsampling or transparency or or different stacking. Heuristics and having reproducible tools that allow you to visualize things without having to go in and tweak it specifically for that data set. There's been great advancements just on on the color front. Like if you look at something like Cube Helix and all those all the amazing color ramps that have come at, that have come out over the last um, really like decade, but then have become super popular, like Veritas or these different color ramps that have been tuned to be perceptually accurate for the human eye and to take into account the fact that we have a nonlinear interpretation of color uh, and we skew, you know, our, our rods and cones skew green, right? Like we we're able to see many more shades of green than we are of, of other parts of the, the visible spectrum. And so knowing that um, advances in neuroscience can help advances in visualization. That's one where they 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 go together. And as these disciplines grow, and we see these interdisciplinary activities where computers are being used more and more in 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 new scientific fields, um, those tools are going to trickle down. And we're going to take examples from say physics, and we're going to apply them to geography. And e- examples from geography, and we're going to apply them to oil and gas. That's one where the the geo folks are. Are great at tiling. If there's one thing we know in geospatial world, it's being able to tile a large data set. And uh, we know that from, uh, you know, Google Maps and um, MapQuest back in the day of, of chopping data sets into 256 by 256 tiles. There's many data sets that need need that. And I think if you look under the, the hood of non-geospatial applications, you'll find geospatial technology helping with things like tiling. And we, we take tiling and we apply it to Um, domains outside of geo, specifically looking at large acoustic plots, looking at um, large amounts of temperature data over time, applying some Fourier transforms and and building some tiles uh, for signal processing. You know, that's an area where geo and um, other domains are going to be collaborating. And I hope to see, what I hope to see is open source technology being used more within the public sector. So state and local governments that are finding that Open source tools are um, reliable enough and easy enough to use that they can be used um, by their analysts in in contexts where there might be high turnover, where you need continuity between different groups, and improving the open source tools so that local and state governments and national governments can use these tools to solve their problems, reduce redundancy between organizations. And also avoid expenses, expensive license fees. So that's one of the areas that that I hope to see over over the next decade in, in increase is open source adoption within um, the public sector. We're not specifically looking at the public sector uh, very much as as we as we do this, but I do see the need for it as I interact with GIS meetup groups and I talk to folks internationally. The role of open source in extending this technical abilities to places that aren't necessarily going to go out and get a, a very expensive um, proprietary package just for Geospatial.
0: Awesome. Well, Brendan, is there anything you wanna add before we close off? Well, one, just
1: you know, thanks thanks so much for having me here. It's, it's really great to get the word out about MakePath and X-Ray Spatial and our open source tools. And just a, a big thanks to a lot of our partners that have helped us so far in um, getting where we are, including, um, you know, Anaconda and Quonsight, SafeGraph and Microsoft and CCI and, and all these guys. And they're, they're helping support our, our open source tools. We also would love to invite any listeners to get involved. If there are uh, folks that have experience in open source, that's great. If you don't have experience in open source, that's great, too. You can come to the project and we can find uh, some, some issues to help you get going and I encourage anyone who is interested in doing open source to simply start. And you can go to github.com forward slash makepath forward slash xrayspatial to go to our GitHub page and check out some
0: issues and take it from there. Brandon, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, Jeffrey.